Blog Talk Radio. Calling all men. It's now your time for your show with your coach, the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross. Relax, be heard, and be understood. It's a show where men can be men. Now here's the coach who has your back, Linda Gross. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Men's Advocate Show. We, I am excited and eager to have you listen to today's show. We're going to be joined by my guest, Moses Sparks, and we're talking about downtime leads to depression. So in 1979, living in a 300-square-foot apartment in Minnesota, depression was his constant companion. Silence was his roommate, and a bowl of fried rice was his daily evening friend. The cold would numb his hands, and the loneliness would numb his mind. Of course, he wondered how he got here and how he would ever get out. So let's follow his journey. Welcome, Moses, to the show. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell me a, a little bit about your journey here. Where did it start? And you moved across country later on. And yeah, so tell me about your humble beginnings in, in Minnesota. Well, so Minnesota, um, it was kind of a landing pad for me. Um, I've lived in a lot of places, 15 states at last count. Wow. And <laughs> Yeah. And um, at that point in my life, my primary focus was uh, was music. And I used to play in bands in the Midwest that traveled across the Midwest, constantly on the move. Um, so my life at that point, it was the inside of a bus, the inside of a, uh, the venue that we were playing, the inside of a hotel. And that was that was just what I did. And um Band, that band, the one that I was working with, broke up, as bands do, and uh, didn't really have a place, didn't have a plan, didn't have a, really have a place to go. And uh, at that time, my father was working in Duluth, Minnesota. So he said, hey, you're not doing anything. Why don't you come up here? You know, you can stay here and uh, kind of figure out what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And I did. I moved to Duluth, Minnesota. And um, I don't know if you know anything about that place, but it's a charming town. Very cold. (laughs) Yeah, it's a charming town, but it's also Uh one of the coldest places in the world. Uh And winter there is a brutal affair. Yeah. You know, I live in California now. If your car breaks down in California by the side of the road, that's an inconvenience. If your car breaks down in Duluth, Minnesota, and there's nobody around, you are dead. Uh, because you'll freeze to death before anybody finds you. So it was just, it was a very strange, you know, very strange environment to to be thrust into all of a sudden like that. Um, So I moved there and then just began to try and figure out what I was going to try to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a little tiny apartment, smaller than most people's bedroom. Um, 
and that include that was everything the kitchen the bathroom and, and a place to put a tiny tiny bed and um i just began uh looking for musicians in that area and so i mean that process took it took a couple of years um but i began to meet people and then to um to play locally there and i met some guys that were you know there were some things happening for them and we made a record the record went onto the charts and we got some notoriety and then got to go and open shows for big national acts and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it was, that was a really, that was a really tough time for me because I just, I didn't know anybody except, you know, the, the guys that I was playing music with. And there just wasn't, for me, there just wasn't much that I could do there. Um, when it's, when it's that bitter cold in the winter, I just really wasn't interested in getting out and going around and stuff. So it was a lot of a lot of alone time and uh, just figuring out how to cope. Did you have other family members in the house other than your your dad? Well, no, my dad lived there. My dad was one of those guys who had a job where um, growing up we moved every year or every two years tops. So we were constantly moving and then settling into a new town, starting in a new school. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was doing at that point. He had taken a job there. And so he actually managed a, um, uh, a big hotel. And that's where I lived when I first went there. So, I mean, he provided a room for me to live there. But he worked all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and my dad and I weren't super close so Mm -hmm. it's not like you know after hours we were going to go hang out together that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so um i eventually got an apartment of my own i I just it it just wasn't going to work for us to be in too close a proximity Mm -hmm. for too long a time (laughs) so (laughs) i had to get my own space and figure it out from there was that the 300 square feet that I was talking about earlier? Oh, yeah. 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 And, and that was in downtown Duluth, Minnesota. And there, at that point, I mean, I'm sure it's changed a lot. Yeah. When I, since I left there, I have never been back. Wow. So, But I, I still know people that live there, and I know it's changed a lot. But at that time, downtown Duluth, there was not much there. There was this big old hotel, mm-hmm. and then... There wasn't very much else, and I found this little tiny apartment. You had to go through this door at street level and walk up, and I lived directly above two businesses that were there. Um, One of them was the Chinese restaurant. That's where the fried rice came from, and I figured (laughs) out pretty pretty early I could have beef fried rice for dinner every night, pretty cheap, get get a little container of that, and that would be dinner most nights. Yeah. And then the other business that was right below me was the one and only pornographic bookstore <laughs> in Duluth. <laughs> so, and I didn't, I didn't uh, go in there, but I saw a lot of colorful characters that did. So those were my two neighbors, the Chinese restaurant and the porno bookstore. That's crazy. So, yeah, I look back on it now and I think that's that sounds like, you know, 
That sounds like something for a novel. It sounds like something from a novel that was made right. up. But it was very, very real for me. <laughs> no internet back then. Couldn't hide oh, in your no. own there living no room. Internet. You had to you had to go out and physically go to those stores. So <laughs> Yeah, crazy. To my listening audience, if you want to call in on our topic today, today we're going to be talking about depression. We're going to be talking about the many pivots that happened in Moses' life and how he tamed the, his um, depression. You can call us at 323-642-1677, 323 Seven seven, or I'll be I'll be looking for you on the chat line. If you're calling live, um, our chat line is right here on BlogTalkRadio.com, BlogTalkRadio.com forward slash D T Linda Gross forward slash D T Linda Gross. All right. Um, so mom wasn't in the picture during this period. No, uh, the rest of my family uh, lived in another state. They and at the, you know, they were, the plan was they were going to relocate there as well. Mm. But, uh, you know, my dad had to go there and get this business going, find a house, do all of that kind of stuff. Right. That was how that, that program used to work. You know, he'd get that call every year or two years and he'd say, hey, we have an opportunity for you. Right. And, you know, I, I come from a family of six kids. So wow. When a when an opportunity would come along where he could make more money, that was just not something he could say no to. That's a lot of mouths to feed. So right. that's what he would do. You know, he would go to wherever that that new job was. He'd be the point guard and he'd get everything set up, and then the rest of the family would follow along. But as soon as I was old enough, I had had enough of that stuff. So as soon as I was old enough to get out of the house and be on my own, I did that. As soon as I was out of school, I hit the road, started traveling with bands and doing my thing that way. I love to ski. I love to be in snow, but I, I don't think I could ever live in snow. I mean, do you psychologically and physically have to prepare for winter? I mean, I, I guess you have to get a freezer and freeze all your foods and make sure the car is running in September. <laughs> so when winter does come, you know, you're not stranded on the side of the road. Do you prepare? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do. I mean, winter, um, anybody that lives, you know, in the northern United States knows what that's about. I mean, when winter's coming, I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan, but, you know, that was the big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever they wanted to talk about, you know, uh, the coming danger and dark times, that was the phrase, winter's coming, <laughs> because it was serious business. That's what yeah. it was there. So, I mean, when winter was coming, you had to prepare for that. Your car yeah. had to be ready. Your house had to be ready. You better have the right clothes um, because it, it's very serious stuff. Yeah. When it gets that cold, I mean, it literally is um, life-threatening. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was, it was a big adjustment, and it, it certainly limits what you can do. People that, are, that were born there and live there, I, I just – they're just used to it. You know, it, it's not this this catastrophic event on the horizon for them, but it was for me. Um, and you would just, I would, I at least would find myself like trapped inside for weeks, months on end. It was like solitary confinement. Um, 
and that you know that takes a psychological toll, of course. How do you how does one cope? I mean, even if you don't have medical issues, how does one cope with cabin fever or just being locked up in a in the same four walls every day? Well, I guess everybody probably does it differently, right? Um, a lot of people, um, television and alcohol. That's that's two two, two remedies yeah. <laughs> for some people. So, um, you know, I, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to. Um, I, I, I don't have anything bad to say about anybody that chooses to do that, that sort of thing. But I have noticed, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Illinois, and I have noticed that where it gets really, really cold, like bars do big business. Because, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a place to get out of the cold and go meet with people and have a drink and see your buddies. And uh, it's a respite you know, from the hostile environment outside. What what makes one stay in the cold? I mean, why not in April <laughs> flee <laughs> or whatever? Is it like the best people on earth and you stay because of the social aspect or? Well, people that um, that live there, I mean, a lot of them, they were born and raised there. So that's home. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're coming from outside of it, it looks like this impossible place where, you know, you're thinking, why would you stay here? But um, if you're born and raised there, that's what you know, and you're and you're comfortable with that, and they adapt to it, and they learn to make it work. I do remember when I was in school, um, I actually lived in Minnesota twice. I guess I'm a slow learner, but I was actually <laughs> there. Uh, I went to grade school for a time there. And then moved away in that endless move cycle my family had. And then, you know, came back, you know, as a, as a young man. Um, but I remember in the grade school period, we had to study um, the history of Minnesota. They, they taught that there. Mm-hmm. And it was a fascinating story. I mean, Minnesota is the story of people that, you know, centuries ago, um, people from uh, Finland, Norway, and Sweden um, made their way to Minnesota. You know, they, they traveled enormous distances and overcame unbelievable obstacles to finally get to this place, you know, in Minnesota. But, you know, at the end, um, they managed to find a place just as absolutely miserable as the one they had come from. I never quite understood that. <laughs> if you were going to do that, why didn't you go to Tampa? You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. If, why wouldn't you go to someplace warm? Someplace warm. But, but I guess that just felt like home. They must have had their reasons for leaving those countries. Right. Came to America and found a place that somebody said, wow, this is just like Norway. <laughs> Let's stay here. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't make right. sense to me, but... That logic, uh, you know, is speaking to somebody because there's yeah. a lot of people there. I gotcha. All right. Well, if you've just joined us, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. Today we are talking to Moses Sparks, who is my guest, and we're going to be talking about uh, clinical depression and the various pivots he's made in his life. Um, Moses, when we come back from break, uh, tell us about 
the time when you were diagnosed with this life-threatening um, issue and what it meant to you and how you, you know, transcribed that. So Absolutely. We will, yeah, we will be right back after the break. The Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross. We will be discussing men's issues, dating, relationships, sex, women, fitness, health, business, men's hobbies, men's rights, and more. She will be talking about excerpts from her men's book, Mastering Women, too. Hi, guys. You've heard her on the Men's Advocate Show. Linda Gross wants you to know what turns a woman on and makes her go wild so she just can't help herself. Check out Linda's book, Mastering Women, Real Truth About Women That'll Change Your Life Forever. Linda gives you all the insider tips on how to catch a woman and, if you want, to keep her. In four easy steps, these proven techniques will make women just melt. Ever wonder why the girl you really liked seemed to be great when you met, then all of a sudden just goes cold on you and turns you off? Linda will also let you know what not to do on a date. Never blow it again by losing another hot woman. You don't have to be good looking or even have money. Her book, Mastering Women, is available in paperback and ebook. Men, Linda's on your side. So buy her book, Mastering Women. Buy it for now. And don't keep your women waiting another minute. Get Mastering Women today. You've heard her on the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross. How can you help further? From her Facebook fan page of the same name. Hit the Shop Now button and save this link to your favorites. Make all your usual Amazon purchases and some of the revenue will support her show at no additional cost to you. No book purchase required. Just start with this link every time. The Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross thanks you. Welcome back, everybody. You're currently on with me, Linda Gross, at the Men's Advocate Show. Call us on this depression topic. <clears throat> Excuse me. 323-642-1677, 323-642-1677, or the chat line, blogtalkradio.com, blogtalkradio.com. Frog in my throat. Of course, it's going to do this <laughs> while I'm on air, right? Um, forward uh, slash DT Linda Gross. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, Moses, tell us um, when and why you were diagnosed and what it meant to you at the time. Um, well, so for me, um, what I, what I learned is that um, depression is something that I had been dealing with for a very, very long time. But it never really had a name for me. I didn't know what it was. You know, in music, music circles, they would call that the blues. And I seem to have the blues a lot, you know, as, as a young man. Um, and then I, re I reached a point where um, it, it just got to be this overwhelming thing, this huge burden that I was carrying around all the time. And um, I knew it was really a problem when I reached a point where 
I just felt like the pressure was so much. I had a family at that point, and I had a job and was, you know, working for a big company. And and the pressure at one point was so much that I began to have these thoughts like, you know what, I I think maybe my family would actually be better off without me. Um, like if I if I wasn't here anymore, if I was dead, they might actually be better off. They would, you know, they would collect the insurance money and and then I wouldn't be around. I mean, it was it was crazy, right? I mean, those thoughts are just they weren't rational thoughts, but that's how far it had progressed for me. And so um I, I talked, you know, I went to a doctor and talked to a doctor, and and he asked me, this guy asked me some very, very pointed questions. And one of those questions was, do you ever think about killing yourself? And, and I had, you know, I had just decided the only thing I can do with this is be completely honest yeah. and just hit this head on. And I told him, yeah. Certainly, it is. It has occurred to me, and at that point, he referred me to um, a psychologist, and I went there and spoke with them, and you know, had a lot of conversations. Went back a few times and stuff, and then that's when they gave me a diagnosis of uh, clinical depression. And um, the I think the valuable part of that for me was that they went to great lengths to tell me this is just not this isn't just feeling down for a while this isn't a temporary thing this is a thing you've probably had your whole life um and it's not all in your head it's real and it's dangerous it can kill you um the person that i was seeing told me you know, this it's it's a very misunderstood thing because people think that it's something they can deal with on their own. They can find a way around it on their own. But he said, you know, one way to think of it, think of it like heart disease. If you had serious heart disease, you know, would you think that you could cure that on your own? Because you you probably wouldn't. You know, people think about that differently. They think, hey, I've got this condition. I've got to get help for it or it's going to kill me. And what they impressed upon me was that depression was very similar, right? If if you didn't figure out how to manage it, it might very well kill you. So, and it, I mean, it certainly takes a toll on your health in a lot of other ways as well. It takes a toll on relationships takes a toll on your ability to do things and to work and it's it's just sort of this pervasive thing that's always with you so are you at this point when you were diagnosed i'm gonna say i was probably in my 40s oh wow at, at that point so i had been dealing with this stuff for a long time um but that was the first time like I ever felt it, it got to the point I just simply had to – I had to talk to somebody else about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was very – you know, it was, a, it was a wake-up call for me. 
Um, and they, rec- you know, they, this, the psychologist recommended, I saw a psychologist and a psychiatrist and, and I'm not, I'm not conversant enough in that those scientists did, you know, really talk about the differences between them. But I saw them both and they both had different questions and both had different things to tell me. But they did recommend that I go to like a a program, like a 12-step program, a a kind of a thing, that sort of a, that sort of a program. I elected not to do that Um, because for me, I began to think about this a lot and I began to analyze like what would bring this on? You know, what would, what would cause me to get into, to go to that place? And stress was certainly a part of it. I had a lot of stress in my life. I had, you know, I had a very demanding, difficult job. I had two little kids. I had two kids in diapers at the same time at one point. Wow. That's stressful. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. Anybody that's ever done it knows, yeah, there's a little stress that comes with that. Yeah. Um, a lot of joy, obviously, but a lot of stress. It's really, really hard. Um, so stress would do it. But also for me, I, I found out that that having too much downtime, like time where I had, it wasn't good for me to have vast amounts of downtime to walk around and think about this, right? That Because that did not help. That just did not help me. It just sort of would feed on itself. It would be like this feedback loop. I'd start thinking about how, you know, this isn't going right for me. I don't right. feel good about this. And it would just become this cycle, this vicious cycle, right? And so – I did figure out that I was like a shark. I needed to keep moving ahead or I was going to sink and drown. So right. being busy and occupying myself and pouring myself into work that was meaningful for me, not just busy work, um, but you know, applying myself to things that were meaningful for me, and I could see results from them. I could see that I was making something. I was creating something. I was connecting with people around something that I was doing. That that became my therapy. Um, so, I mean, in did, a way... Did you, I, did you come across this re- revelation on your own that keeping busy and doing something meaningful would, you know, step you in a positive direction? I'm, I, you know, I feel like I did, but I'm sure that it was suggested to me. Right. I mean, the the time that I was you know, that I, I was diagnosed with this and was talking to professionals about it. I don't have a whole lot of memories of that. I mean, that was just, that was just a bad, bad time. And yeah. maybe I've just blocked those out. Maybe I've blocked those memories out or maybe my memory's just not that good. I don't know, but I don't have, a, I don't, haven't retained a lot of details about that stuff, but I'm mm-hmm. certain that was suggested to me, you know, mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, hey, you you need to find something to do besides thinking about this stuff. And and I did. And I mean, that that just absolutely worked for me. And to this day, I mean, if I find myself 
I'm a busy guy. I'm I'm involved in a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm a multitasker. I don't mind doing four things at once. I just, I don't. Um, and so I do that. That drives some people crazy, and I know that. But but I don't mind it, and I seem to be pretty good at it. So I do that. And if I have times, and I crave downtime. I do. I mean, I'll get crazy busy. I'll be busy for weeks on end where I just don't, I just don't have a hole in the calendar where there's really time to just sit and relax. And I'll begin to crave it. And then when I get a couple of days of it, oh, man, that is wonderful. But that's enough. Like, like two weeks of it, three weeks of it, no, 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 no. I don't. No, I, I don't want to do that because, you know, I'll just think nonstop about how, God, it's going to be so nice to get a hole in the in the schedule and take a break, have you know, have a couple of days off. And it is. And then after that couple of days, I, I find myself getting bored. I find myself getting restless. And the connection that I figured out a long time ago was that for me, boredom compounds on itself and it leads to depression. Right. I, I I just get too much time to reflect on stuff that it's not necessarily healthy for me to be reflecting on. So, I mean, that's that's really been my uh, my M.O. for a long time. It's just, hey, man, just stay busy. Just have stuff queued up that that I can work on, that I can pour myself into. I enjoy it. It's very it's satisfying. And it keeps me away from the edge. So I think I love <laughs> I love that you found balance with that though, that you can take a day off or a weekend off here and there and you're okay with it. I mean, not three weeks, of course, but um, you know, some people are so obsessive that it's just all or nothing. So I love that there's a little mm-hmm. bit of balance there. Yeah. I I don't and and balance that's a, that's the perfect word for it. Because I don't want to be a hamster on a wheel. Like, right. I'm not talking about being so busy that I'm losing my mind. Right. And and I'm the guy that has to lose his mind in order to save his mind. I don't feel like I'm that. I'm that. Yeah. But I just like to have stuff. Um, I mean, you know, as you get older, um, you certainly realize that it's really important to have something to look forward to every day. It's nice right. to wake up in the morning and think, oh, hey, yeah, I'm going to do this thing today. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. I mean, it gives you something to to focus on and to move toward. And, um, and I, I, you know, I, I more than one wise man has said that, you know, the secrets to happiness are not that involved, right? It's having something to look forward to. I know that's a big one. It's yeah. a big one. And it doesn't have to be a, a big thing. Like for me, I'm doing um, the work that I do these days. It's just it's super gratifying to me. And I have these really involved projects that involve travel and and all kinds of stuff. But it doesn't even have to be that. I do this thing. Uh, I'm glad my wife is not listening to this because she would laugh so hard at this. But I do this thing. Um, Every morning when I get up, I cannot wait to go sit in a chair I've got right by the window where I can watch all the birds 
flying by and feeding from the bird feeders we put out there and having a cup of French roast <laughs> and just <laughs> and having, you know, an hour to poke my phone and see who's who's looking for me or what's going on. That's and that's a little quiet time too, right? That's yeah. That's a little space that I make for myself. And I look forward to that so much. Whatever else happens the rest of the day, I know that that first hour I've got me and some birds and a cup of coffee and peace and quiet. And I really look forward to that. That wouldn't be enough. If that's all I had in my life, that wouldn't yeah. be enough. Because that right. hour is going to end and then I'm going to be like, uh-oh. Now what? <laughs> but I that's a really nice you. start, you know. I, I do something very similar every morning. Yeah, it's 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 a great way to start the day. It just kind of sets the tone. And if you rush into the day too quickly, you know that sets a negative tone. I think so. Yeah, good good on you. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, um, Moses. When we come back from break, you mentioned uh, speak to the men in my audience here who may also be suffering from depression is just being busy enough or is it that you had to find something that was meaningfully uh busy (laughs) yeah so we'll talk to that when we uh we'll speak to that when we get back from the break hey guys do you have a nagging problem that you just can't get a handle on now you can talk to an expert coach right in the privacy of your own home meet in person over the phone or with a free skype call anywhere in the world linda is here to make it easy for you linda gross has done years of academic research combined with interviewing over twenty thousand men linda's expert advice gets you through tackling relationship issues business goals conflict resolution and removing lifetime roadblocks that have kept you back usually handled in four sessions or less realize the benefits now go to the men's advocate page slash coaching and you'll be on your way that's the men's slash coaching darn maybe you missed part of this show maybe you're still at work during the show maybe you heard the show but would like to listen again your problems are easily solved Listen to any and all of Linda's archived shows at your convenience. Just Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate. That's Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate. The on-demand library is also available on the TuneIn app. Subscribe now and please share with your friends. Welcome back, everybody. You're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. Today, we are talking about downtime leads to depression. We're on with my guest today, Moses Sparks. You can call in on this topic and ask Moses a question or or state your comments about it. 323 323-642-1677, 323-643-1. I'm sorry, 323-642-1677 or on the chat line, um, blogtalkradio.com, blogtalkradio.com forward slash DT Linda Gross forward slash DT Linda Gross. So Moses, you were saying um, off air at one point, your life was high drama. You had success, you had crushing failure, marriage, divorce, BK, near-death experiences, kids, love, loss. I mean, shoot, you had it all. So 
one of the coping me mechanisms that you have is to keep yourself busy. So what would you say to guys out there that might be going through similar bouts of depression? Is just being busy enough or do you have to make it a meaningful busy? Yeah, I, I don't think that simply being busy, like just filling your calendar every day, I, you know, again, I'm just speaking from my own perspective, but, but that wouldn't be enough for me. Yeah. Um, I have had, I've had this weird double agent kind of thing going on in my life for a very long time. Um, like at the time that, um, that I was diagnosed with depression, I had a job with a big company and I mean, looking from the outside in, people would say, wow, that, that's a great job. I mean, they, they paid me very well. The, uh, the benefits were very good. It was a very well-known, prestigious company. Um, but in terms of what it meant to me, it, it, it didn't mean a thing. It was, it was a paycheck, and it was benefits, health benefits for my family, that's all it was. The work itself meant nothing to me. Um, but I'm a creative person. I always have been. It drives me. It just absolutely drives me. I have to do it. Um, and so for as long as I can remember, I've pretty much always had a job of some kind. I was on somebody's payroll. And that was paying the bills, but I also had the equivalent of another full-time job. And for the longest, for a very long time, I was a, a professional musician, and I did a little of everything, you know, spent a lot of time on the road, did recording sessions for people. I hired out to, you know, work in people's bands and stuff like that. Um, and... I just spent, if I wasn't at work, I was doing that. Or I was spending time with my kids, you know. And I, I, I tried to, like, sort of parcel out the time for all of those things and make all of that work. And I know for a lot of people, that would drive them crazy, like having that much on their plate. Mm -hmm. It would drive them crazy. It, it, it didn't drive me crazy. I feel like it kept me from going crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because... I would go to work, I would do the job, the job that meant nothing, but the job <laughs> provided a paycheck, kept a roof over our head. And then I would, and then I would, you know, veer off from that and I would go do the thing that was, that, that meant something to me. And I was willing to devote the time, rather than go sit, sit and watch TV, I was willing to devote the time to go and do that. I will talk a little bit about that. I, I'm, I, I'm kind of surprised to find that this is sometimes like people are kind of shocked by it or it's remotely controversial or whatever. But um, I figured out a couple of things that I could take out of my life many, many years ago. And they were alcohol and television. Because I found both of those things to be enormous time sucks. Um, because the easiest thing in the world, I think, is to come home from work, 
and sit down, turn on the TV, and have a drink. Boy, right. it's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's relaxing. <laughs> it's relaxing, but you, you don't want to stop doing it. Yeah. You just don't want to stop doing it. Um, and again, it's, you know, who am I to judge anybody? But I have so many friends that kind of is their life. They have a job, they have television, and they like to drink. And they devote a lot of time to the to that drinking and, and the television thing. And and I just figured out a long time ago, hey, you know what? If I just subtract those two things out of my day, boy, it frees up a lot of time. And then that's time that I can spend doing this creative thing that I need to do that sustains me. It really does sustain me. It really does nourish me. So that's what I've done forever, right? And so like my current job, um, I stopped working for big companies, and my current job is I am a full-time uh, wildlife photographer. <laughs> there's a pivot for you. Yeah. Um, and it's it. It takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of time, um, but it's just so satisfying for me. So whatever I have to sacrifice in the way of like little creature comforts and things to do that, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So you would say one of the most crucial parts of your life is to have this creative outlet, outlet as well as your, your young daughters and everything. So that was what sustained you. That was what fulfilled you, and that was what filled up some of that that depression hole. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think doing something meaningful is really important, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be another job. Maybe you want to go fishing, you know. Maybe you love just having that time to yourself and dropping a line in the water, and you know. Maybe you want to go out with your friends and, you know, whatever, go bowling, go play golf, whatever. I mean, it it doesn't have to be like I always seem to gravitate toward this thing that's another job, right? I always have a job, and then it's like I always go and seek out another job. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why that is. But, I mean, it works out well for me because typically this creative thing that I do, it also generates some money. So it's helpful, right? Yeah. So, like, I am I am not the guy that, like, is taking my paycheck and then I'm spending it all on the new bass boat that I have to have. Right. <laughs> my bass boat pays for itself. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's it's just it's just finding anything that, that has some meaning for you and then being able to to focus on that and enjoy that. That's just been so, so important for me. That's awesome. All right. Since you brought up the photography, I'll, I'll bring it up too. Um, you can reach uh, Moses. Um, please chat. By the way, if you guys are listening live, go to the picture carousel on Blog Talk Radio. There are a variety of wildlife photos that have been taken by Moses, and they are just incredible. You can find more on his website, Moses Sparks wildlifephotography.com. I know that's a mouthful. By the way, guys, you don't have to remember all of that. It's going to be in the links after the show. Moses Sparks Wildlife Photography. And he has a an ongoing 
show that is happening. It's called Lost in the Forest. For those of you who live in Los Angeles, um, it is a collection of his amazing portraits of California trees. And this show is happening Wednesdays through Sundays in February at King Gillette Ranch in Calabasas. So actually, Moses, you were on the morning show recently. Let me just play a quick little clip of that. And now to this morning's Bright Spot. If you love nature and all things beautiful, you're going to love this morning's Bright Spot. Internationally acclaimed wildlife photographer Moses Sparks reached out to me to share his good news. His work is being showcased for the National Park Service. It's called Lost in the Forest, Intimate Portraits of California Trees. So let me show you some of these amazing and breathtaking photos. This show is free and open to the public at the Santa Monica Mountains Interagency Visitor Center at the Gillette Ranch in Calabasas. It will run from February 1st through the 26th. Uh, we, of course, will put the information on our website for you. We are super excited for Moses for a couple of reasons. I mean, look That's at that. Uh, Isn't that amazing? amazing? Yeah. I have to just zoom in and show you that. Um, he's family to us. He was actually an NBC Universal staff photographer here for 33 years. Oh. And I have a personal connection, too. Hmm. Uh, Moses was actually my wedding photographer 20 right. years ago. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for that clip. Um, so, yeah, I hope you will check out Moses' show. Um, yeah, it's going on uh, long weekends, four-day weekends, uh, through the end of the month, in the month of February here. So tell us how you made that, that pivot going from, I, I, as the host was saying, you went from NBC, you were also working at NBC, uh, probably that was dissimilar to the photography pr profession. Uh, so how did you make that pivot going into your new this uh, new road for you? Um, well, this this part of it came about. Let me let me back up. I've been doing photography for since I was literally a kid. The very first job I ever had, um, I got a job working after school in high school as an assistant so like the only professional photographer in town and i learned the business like from the ground up i was the lab rat i i mixed chemicals i loaded film i made prints i swept up the studio i made coffee i did everything um but it was a it was a fantastic learning experience for me because rather than just like learn it out of a book i got to see how this photographer actually talk to clients, like how he negotiated prices, you know, how he did all of the business side of it, as well as the, wow. the creative side of it. And so I've been doing that. That thread has run through my life since I was a kid. My dad bought me my first camera. I think I was maybe, maybe 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And I was the geeky kid. I actually, you know, converted my mom's laundry room in the basement to a dark room, hung up black sheets, and used to develop film down there and make prints. So I've, I've just been doing it forever. Um, and I, I operated as a commercial photographer for about 35 years um, and did really, really well with it. I mean, I've had pictures published in, you know, big magazines, Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, Entertainment Weekly, um, a lot of different places. I've worked for uh, many, many big Fortune 500 companies doing their annual reports, photographing their CEOs, 
And then, you know, through my NBC Universal connections, I photograph lots and lots of celebrities. So I, I've done all of that kind of stuff for a long time. But then during the pandemic, um, and I was really busy with that. So that, that was mm-hmm. job number two, right, for a long right. time. Um, and I was just incredibly busy with it. And I was very fortunate. I was very successful with it. And then in March of 2020, it just absolutely came to a complete stop. Mm. All of that business just went away. It just evaporated like overnight. There was no work at all. And um, again, with the the knowledge that, hey, I can't be sitting around the house watching TV. Right. I'm going to have to do something now. Um and I just started going out hiking every day and uh, taking a camera with me. And I had never photographed wildlife before. I just never really had an interest in it. I'd never been exposed to it. I'd been a people photography really my whole life. Mm-hmm. But I started doing it, and I was really fortunate at that time. Um, a friend of mine had a great big super telephoto lens that I would have never had a reason to buy doing the kind of work that I did, but he wasn't using it. And he said, Hey, you're going out hiking every day. Anyway, why don't you take this with you and see what you can do with it. And I started photographing animals and I made a couple of like, to me, shocking discoveries. One was that um, I was pretty good at it because I'd spent 35 years practicing, learning everything there was to know about photography, Mm -hmm. even though it was a brand new subject. I mean, the tools and techniques, I knew that. I knew photography like the back of my hand. So I was pretty good at it right off the bat. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I just sort of, you know, I I just, I don't, things that I do, I just don't do them halfway. So I went completely off the deep end and threw myself into it, started posting those pictures online. And the response that I got from people online it was just astonishing to me. I mean, people were calling me and texting me and messaging me saying, you know what? I'm stuck in the house all the time because of this damn virus. Mm-hmm. And I see your pictures and I'm, I look forward to them every day. I mean, it's a bright spot in my day. And it, it's like, even though I can't be out there in the woods, you are every day and I get to see what you're seeing. And it's just fantastic. And then out of nowhere, I get a, I got a call from the National Park Service. And they said, hey, we saw your pictures online. We're doing a project in Hawaii. We need to photograph the endangered birds here to try and help save these guys. Would you have any interest in coming to Hawaii and going in the rainforest and photographing these birds for us? And I was like, (laughs) I could be at the airport in an hour. Um, And I did that. I mean, it was just this astonishing experience. They, you know, I worked with a team of park rangers and biologists and an ornithologist from the University of Hawaii. They took me in the rainforest. Their job was to find the birds. Mm -hmm. My job was to figure out how to photograph them. We found them all. I photographed them all. They were ecstatic. So I spent a week slogging through the mud in the rainforest of Hawaii about 6,000 feet up the side of the Mauna Loa, Mauna Loa volcano. And it was just incredible. And I posted those pictures, of course. That led to another thing. That led to another thing. The next thing I know, I'm in Costa Rica, and I'm shooting pictures for conservation groups down there and made a bunch of new friends down there. Um, 
I go back again in May. I've been there a few times already. And the whole thing just snowballed. And that's how the gallery show, I started getting invitations to do speaking engagements for like parks and rec groups. Um, I'm, um, there's a big West Coast retailer. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention their name on air, but uh, they are the biggest uh, retailer of, of photographic equipment on the West Coast. They contacted me. I'm doing classes for them, teaching workshops for them, things like that. It's just snowballed. It's just absolutely, and I mean, just out of nowhere. And it, it, and it was really just from going out and making these pictures, making them my own way. I had an idea in my head, and it was I would see these animals, and I would think, man, these things are they're, they're living works of art. And that's how I would portray them. I would shoot them as art. I would shoot right. them the same way I would shoot a movie star, right? Beautiful lighting, beautiful background, the perfect pose, looking for that perfect moment. Right. When, when I've taught photography, I've always told people that with portrait photography, the difference between a good portrait and a great one, it's a fraction of a second. It's that one little slice of time where somebody turns exactly the right way to the light, to the camera, they reveal something about themselves you might not have seen ordinarily. It, it's exactly the same with animals. Wow. And so that's a, that's my new thing, and, that, and I'm doing it. And I've, I've got a book project underway. I've got gallery shows. I've got speaking engagements. Um, and it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. That's awesome. So how important would you say it is for our listening audience out there to maybe have a plan B or a plan C or even just a hobby that keeps your interest? You know, you could be, I don't know, building birdhouses for, for all we care. How important is it to have that side gig, so to speak? Uh, well, again, I can only look at it through my own lens, right? But I, I think it's it's vital. I think it's absolutely important. And um, I'm supposed to be retired, right? And I think I'm doing it wrong because I, <laughs> I, I think I'm busier. Busier than ever. <laughs> busier than ever. So I think I'm doing it all wrong. So certain, don't look at me as an expert on how to do that. But what I do know um, somebody told me, and I don't, and I, I'm sorry, I don't recall who it was, but it's somebody that knew what they're talking about. And they told me that for a lot of men, the, the single most dangerous year of a man's life is the first year that he retires. Yes. Um, and it's, it's for a number of reasons. Um, and I think maybe the most insidious and sinister one is that a lot of folks, they, they don't really have a solid plan for what they're going to do. Because, you know, on Friday, you're getting up and you're going to that job. You've got that routine that you're doing. You've been doing it for a long time. And on Monday, guess what? You're not doing that. You're going to do something. you got to do something else. Right. And I think if you're just assuming – Oh, I'll figure this out. You know, I'll figure out what I'm going to do. Well, I know what that would be for me, right? Downtime. <laughs> we already know. 
That didn't go anywhere good. (laughs) Right. And so I think a lot of guys, you know, man, you talk about a prime opportunity to sort of fall into depression. What could be more picture perfect than that? Because all that structure in your life, all that routine in your life, it's gone. You got to kind of make it up for yourself. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's a real, that's a real fork in the road, I think, in most people's lives. And so I was really fortunate before that time came, I already had this plan. You know, I was already doing this wildlife photography. I got to travel to do a lot of it. And I was already thinking, man, I'd like to have more time to devote to that. So that's my plan. I mean, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this until I can't do it anymore. When the legs give out and I can't tromp through the mud and the rainforest anymore, I might have to rethink this. But until that happens, that's what I'm going to do. So, yeah, I think something like that to focus on. Um, And I think it's important at any, any stage of your life. But when you get to the point where you might not be working in the sense that most people think of it, you know, having a full-time job, that kind of thing. I think it's probably even more important then, right? Because something's got to fill that void. Right. And is it really going to be television and alcohol? I mean, you know, I keep painting those yeah. two things as the villain. But for me, I mean, they are. They are. I, many, I, I absolutely many, know. that's the default, yes. It's like they get retired know, and, they, me, and they – figure they're going to spend a few more hours with the TV or the alcohol, but you know, that only lasts so long, you know, after about the third or fourth month, you're like, now what am I doing? (laughs) Yeah. So I know for me, that would be a lethal combination. I know it would be fatal. I know it would. Yeah. Yeah. I'd sit on the couch and gain 50 pounds and (laughs) probably have a heart attack. (laughs) I won't do that. I need a better plan than that. Right. it's I, I just I see that as a trap that would be easy to fall into if you don't have some kind of a plan, if you don't have some kind of a focus. Right. Yeah, you went all in. You left the, the big day job, you left Los Angeles and <laughs> you dove right into wildlife country. Uh you're living uh I I think it's in the Sierras where you live, right? It's like on the way to Mammoth over there. Yeah. Is that part yeah, of the I actually Sierras? I actually live up in Wrightwood. I'm I'm in the San Bernardino National Forest. Yeah, it, and that was just I mean, and the whole retirement thing. I don't want to make it sound like oh man, I had this meticulously crafted master plan for how I was going to make this transition right. into life. Like in my case, uh, the company I was working for contacted me and said, hey. We had an idea. We think it might be better if you weren't here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. Like, like really? Uh, and they're like, yeah, we've got to make, we've got to find some massive <laughs> cost cuts. Yeah. And part of that is going to be guys that, you know, they didn't say all this to me, but I know how this stuff works, you know. Essentially, if you read between the lines, what they're saying is, yeah, you know, we're we're looking for a bunch of guys like you uh, that we we want to get rid of, and we're going to replace them with somebody half your age and pay them half as much. That's the plan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, uh, that's rather unexpected. But they, I I had no idea. 
I had no idea. I literally got a phone call giving me the day after I bought a brand new car, by the way. Of course. The day after I bought that car and picked it up, I got the phone call saying, yeah, we think maybe, you know, we'd like you to go away. Um, but fortunately, they said, look, we're going to give you this if you agree and don't sue us. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and it was it looked good. It to was me. equitable on both ends. It was yes. It was equitable. Got, I mean, you they, got super lucky, and you were super lucky that you already had, you know, your creative endeavors already going for you, and that yeah. is just, you know, been a blessing that both of those areas have just really taken off. So yeah. good on and you. And I I have nothing bad to say about those guys. I mean, they were always good to me. And they were good to me right to the end. It was very unexpected that, you know, that development would happen. But that's how it all came about. So that's what I mean when I say I didn't sit, you know, I didn't five years ago, I didn't sit down with a with a computer and make a spreadsheet and say, okay, on this date, I'm kissing <laughs> them goodbye. And that's what we're doing. No, they kissed me goodbye. Right. Um, but, yeah, luckily, I mean, I had some stuff in motion where I could make that transition relatively painless. And right. You know, for, for my part, my wife and I have been talking for a long time about getting out of the city, getting away from the traffic, getting away from the crowds and the noise. Yeah. We thought, you know, this looks like the perfect time to do that. So. Yeah, everything was in alignment. So compared to, um, you know, the opening uh, monologue that I had with regard to 1979 when you were writing back then in that 300-square-foot apartment. Uh, fast forward 43 years, and now, I quote, you say that I walked out onto the porch of my new home and squinted at the sunlight streaming through the giant evergreens that surround us while mountain birds sang about the beauty that stretched as far as I could see. And I said these words to myself, I have no complaints. I hope that you, my listening audience, that you have reached the point in your, on your path that you can see it in the distance. So speak to that and then maybe a sentence or two and we'll close out the show, Moses. Yeah, I'm just, I feel incredibly grateful because, you know, I mean, this, like the topic we've been on here, right, is depression. And so it's something I've dealt with for a long time. And I mean, you know, just to be honest, it, it could have killed me, right? I could yeah. have not survived it. A lot of right. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't survive it. They get it. They don't figure out how to cope with it because I don't know if you can cure it. I don't know if it's curable or not. I kind of think it's like alcoholism. It's it's some if you have it, it's always there, right? Right. Um, so I survived it. I mean, yeah. I was fortunate enough. I, I figured out how to cope with it, how to work with it and get past it. And, you know, I made it to this point that I am now. So. I'm just incredibly grateful, you know. I would hope that anybody that's dealing with that kind of stuff, they can, uh, you know, they can find a light in the dark and find their way out. And when I, when I said, you know, I have no complaints, that sounds like a maybe that sounds like an underwhelming summation of that in your life. But I felt like, man, that's probably as much as you could hope for. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you could get to that point. Say, okay, I got here. I don't have anything to bet you about. Yeah. I, I feel incredibly fortunate and grateful to be able to do that. 
Yeah, and I think the moral of the story here is find find things that make you happy. You know, find an outlet, find reasons to get up in the morning, you know, whether you're 40 or you're 80, you know, it kind of doesn't matter. You have to look forward to the day. And if you don't look forward to the day, boy, you better put that as a priority because that might be that day might be yanked from you. (laughs) I I just I feel like you have to be responsible for your own happiness. You have to figure out how do I get there? How do I make that happen for me? Because unless you're a child with loving parents, nobody else is going to be responsible for your happiness, right? You're going to have to do it. Yeah. All right. So we're on with my guest, Moses Sparks. You can find him, find his beautiful photography, MosesSparksWildlifePhotography.com. Go, uh, you know, go to visit his show, which is in Calabasas. All those links will be at the bottom of the show after the show. So thank you, uh, Moses, for joining our show today. I really appreciated uh, having you be here. Thank you. All right. All right, everybody. We'll catch you next time on the Men's Advocate Show. Bye for now. Bye-bye.